Hello and welcome to the Power of Sports podcast, where the jocks read comic books and the geeks lift weights. I'm your host, Aaron Miller, and in today's episode, we speak to the hilarious Barry Tompkins, a longtime sports broadcaster who has, in his nearly 50 years working in television, covered almost every sport you can think of at Fox, NBC, HBO, ESPN, and Showtime. Barry is a San Francisco native where he attended George Washington High School, and it was in the Bay Area that he started his career. He's covered the World Cup, the Super Bowl, eight Olympic Games, the Tour de France, the Masters, the World Series, the Rose Bowl, the NCAA Final Four, Wimbledon, and over 400 World Championship boxing fights. And the list goes on and on. Barry is perhaps best known for his work as a boxing commentator, and indeed he was voted into the International Boxing Hall of Fame in 2017. But Barry is also a four-time Emmy Award winner, teaches storytelling for television at Dominican University, and writes a humor column for the Marin Independent Journal. So please join me and listen to Barry reminisce on his career in sports broadcasting, his up-close impressions of boxers like Mike Tyson, and what the power of sports means to him now. Hi, Barry. How are you? I'm fine. Thank you so much for taking some time to meet oh, and, and talk happy about sports. It's really a pleasure and an honor that you would join me. Uh, you know, really excited to ask you a range of questions, but I always like to start these shows by talking about your experiences growing up with sports. What was the first sport that you were into or played? When I was growing up, I was 5'7 and 128 pounds. So football was out immediately for me. And so was basketball. Okay. Really the only sport that I was remotely adept at was track and field. I was a runner and, and I still am actually to this day, but, but I was a sprinter when I was a kid mm-hmm. and yeah. And, you know, moderately successful, not nothing that to write about, but I was always a fan. I was always a sports junkie when mm-hmm. I was a kid. I always tell, I never read a comic book. I always read at that time it was sport magazine or, or the St. Louis sporting news. Those were my comic books. Now, wait a minute, though. St. Louis, you grew up here in the Bay Area. I, I did, but the St. Louis Sporting News was a national publication. Oh, I see. Now it's just the Sporting News. That's what I was wondering. I didn't know that. So yeah. originally it was called the St. Louis Sporting News, and then they yes. changed their name be- because they wanted uh, more than people like right. yourself outside of right. St. Louis reading right. it. Right, exactly. Interesting. Exactly. Okay. And it had every, every remote statistic from minor league baseball. It was mostly baseball. But so at that time, I, I was kid, but I, but it's it's kidding on a square that I probably knew more about statistics and that sort of thing when I was ten years old than I do now. I can relate to that. I really can. Um, so was it the statistics? Was it being able to talk to your friends about sport, about the the best players and why they were the best players and that kind of thing that that drew you in as a fan, or was it? Something- yeah, I think so. I, I was just always attracted to it. My dad was an athlete and. He was a big sports fan, so I grew up with it. And mm-hmm. I, I lived in, I was raised in San Francisco, so I grew up we really with minor league baseball. And, and for that matter, even minor league football, because when I was a kid, the, the 49ers, who were you know, now our, our local NFL team, they weren't even in the NFL. It was the uh, American Football League. 
Right. You know, or it's not even, you know, it wasn't even American football, all American football league. Okay. Yeah. And so that's, I grew up with them and I actually lived right near Keysar Stadium, which is where they played. So I could walk to the games. Is that right? Uh, yeah. So that was my background as, as a kid. I just was always a, a junkie. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. And you said you're a runner, you were a runner, a, a sprinter then, and, and still a runner to this day. Yeah. Um, well, I laughingly say runner. Now it's moving fast enough not to fall over. <laughs> <laughs> hey, whatever works. I'm, I'm impressed. I played basketball for too many years and my knees don't hold up for me to do much running these days, but that are there places you like to run in the Bay area? There's so many nice places here. I mean, even in Sausalito, you can <laughs> see right behind me here, there's bike trails and all kinds of, they're, they're, in fact, in Marin County, there's where I live, there's 500 miles of hiking trails and bike trails. Right? Yeah, so it's boundless. And now at my age, I'll stay off the hills. I'll run only on the flats. Mm -hmm. But yeah, but it's a nice little run just through town from one. We're at the south end of Sausalito, right near the Golden Gate Bridge. And I'll run through town. It's about a five-mile run there and back. That sounds really great. And so, Barry, when you're growing up, you're watching sports, you're learning the statistics, you're talking to your friends about the games, and I presume your dad as well. Was there a favorite coach or teacher or other influential figure in your life that, that brought you even deeper into sports? Well, once I got in the business, though, what was actually, okay. I, I should take that back. It's funny, I write a little newspaper column here, and uh, I just wrote about this during the playoffs. But my family, uh, my, my mom and dad lived here, but everybody else in my dad's side of the family was in Brooklyn. Oh, okay. and, and so I used to go to Brooklyn every, every year, every summer, we would go there for four weeks, five weeks, something like that. And I had an uncle, Uncle Max. I think everybody has an Uncle Max, but if you're Jewish, you have to have an Uncle Max. <laughs> yes, it, it's a given, you have to. And so, That's really and, funny. and he was the ultimate baseball fan. And he never, he, he sat in this big, soft, lazy boy kind of chair. I never saw him on his feet. I only saw him in that lazy boy chair, okay, okay. watching baseball. And he had played a million years ago. And, and so I really... I used to sit there and watch the Dodgers with him. And I was a big Dodger fan. Sure. And and uh, he explained the game more than my dad, who also played. But but Uncle Max was a real influence in my being a fan of, of baseball in particular. And is this Pee Wee Reese days? Who was your yeah. favorite player? Yeah, Jackie, Jackie Robinson was my favorite player by far. I mean, sure. I used to even, you know, playing in, in my own little games, I used to try to have a batting stance like Jackie Robinson where you have the bat way up. Sure, have a sure. pigeon-toed stance. I couldn't hit the ball with a damn. <laughs> but it looked like Jackie Robinson. <laughs> That's all that matters, right? Yeah. yeah. That's so fun. So part of your upbringing really is in Brooklyn as well in this, those summer so summer visits. And of course, right. I want to get into it later because I know you worked in New York. But mm -hmm. before we, we talk about that, your first job in, in broadcasting I think it was here in the Bay Area, right? Yeah, it was. To be honest, Aaron, my whole career was a complete fluke. You know, okay. and, and for, for real. And if it wasn't for probably two or three days in my life, I have no idea what I'd be doing. Now. Is that right? You know, but, but yes, honestly, there was just a couple of times where I happened to be, you know, standing in the right place sure, where somebody sure. said, where somebody said, you know, have you ever done this? And, and of course, I, I learned a long time ago, and I, I tell this to any kid. In fact, just earlier today, I was talking to a student who I've been trying to help. And I said, the one thing I, I learned, the one thing you have to remember in this business, if anybody ever asks you, have you done this before? There's only one answer, you yeah, know, yeah, right. and then you figure it out. And, and really, basically, that's the story of my career. I was in the advertising business and I had, and I hated the advertising business. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, KCBS radio in San Francisco was one of my clients. 
and and they asked me to go to work for them as, as a promotions director. Okay. So I wrote little, I used to write on music and that sort of thing. So I wrote little jingles and, oh, how you know, cool. and, and, you know, copy for stay tuned, coming up, that kind of thing. Sure. And, but at that time I really was a real sports junkie and, and I grew up listening to Don Klein, who was the sports director there. And so almost from the jump, when I first got there, I really didn't want to do what I was doing. So right at the get-go, I went and introduced myself to Don Klein, told him I'm a great sports fan. I was born and raised in the Bay Area. I know all this stuff. I'm, re- you know, I'm a writer. I could write. And Don was doing a bunch of, of commentaries at that time. Sure. And so I said, let me write your commentaries. I can write your commentaries. It'll save you a whole lot of time. Let me do. I was such a pain in the ass. He finally <laughs> said, okay. You know? And I'm sure, I'm sure he did it just to get rid of me. You know? That's funny. That's so, funny. And really, that's, so that's how it started. And Don was, we say in the industry, who's my rabbi. He taught me everything I know and let me, first I wrote for him. And then he taught me how to do interviews. And I went out and did post-game interview kinds of things. And, um, and then he gave me a weekend show on Saturdays, reading football scores. That's all I did for like hours, an hour show. All I did was a slippery rock beat Shippensburg State, 35 to 27. It was all oh, interesting. All football scores. No, no commentary, no nothing. Just read football scores. How interesting. And, and I went from there. That, that's such a fascinating relic, really, because with the internet nowadays, we take it for granted that you can check the score of any game live in real time. Yeah. But yeah, back in those changed days, the world. Changed that, the world. Right? Yeah, wow. yeah, it's absolutely changed the world. How funny. And so you begin with KCBS and you, you also work for KPIX in the Bay Area, but then you move to New York and you're covering sports in the Big Apple. And I, I, I wonder what that was like being a, well, it, a Bay Area you know, boy. It, again, it's very funny because I was telling some of these stories just, just prior to getting on with you to this kid that I've been trying to help. He's a, a young guy and he's at USC and he's doing really well. But anyway, I, I was saying that the way I got into the business to begin with and then I'll get to going to New York. Mm-hmm. And I mentioned earlier that you know, my career is really based on two or three days in my life. But the first one was getting Don Klein to finally cave in. And, and <laughs> then the next one was I was having lunch here in San Francisco. San Francisco is very towny. It's, it, it isn't at all like New York. And especially when you grow up here, there's a real phenomenon that uh, I think is unique to San Francisco that if anybody ever asks, what school did you go to? You always say your high school. Right. Always. Right. Never what college you went to. And everywhere else I've been, if you say, what school did you go to? They'll say UCLA or NYU or whatever. But in San Francisco, it's any local, anybody from San Francisco who say, what school did you go to? They'll always say their right. high school. And I understand so, you went to George Washington. High I did. School. Yeah. And the only reason I know that is because my father-in-law is friendly with someone that you're friendly with, I think, or maybe worked with at some point, Jeff Simon. Yeah, sure. He's a very good friend of mine. We worked together at KRON. Right, right. Yeah, my father-in-law had lunch with him just this week. So that's isn't that funny? Such a small world. Yeah, you know, it's yeah, yeah, it's funny. You know, here we are on a podcast and we're talking like we're across the dinner table, but (laughs) but but my wife and I were just saying we got to get a hold of Jeff. We got to have dinner with Jeff and Maria again. Just the other day. How funny is that? That is interesting. Yeah. And by the way, my father-in-law went to George Washington High School too. He was two years behind you, I think. Wow. 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 That's enough funny. Small world. Small world. 
Yeah, so, so anyway, I, you were saying about high school. Well, I was saying San Francisco is very towny, and and everybody knows everybody, and especially if you were into sports. I knew people from every every high school in town, and so when you go there to this day, I run into people that might have gone to Balboa or Gala or one of these other high schools that you just know, which leads to the story of how I wound up at KPIX and ultimately in New York. Mm-hmm. I was having lunch with Hank Greenwald, who I think did the oh, Yankees sure. one year. He did the Giants and, and we were friends. all the time. Yeah. And, and Franklin Muley was the owner of the Golden State Warriors at that time. And he he, had, he got the war. He wasn't a big time business guy. He owned a flower shop and he and he bought the Warriors for you know, five or six thousand, whatever it was. Nothing. Holy moly. You know, and he wanted, yeah. And so we were having lunch and Hank said, I just turned down the job, down the job at KPIX. Hank was a radio guy. He loved radio and hated television. He said, I just turned down this job at KPIX. You might want to call this guy. I went back to my office and I called the guy at KPIX and he said, when can you come over? And I, I said, I'm off work at whatever time it was. And I'll, I'll come over then. He said, okay, fine. So I went over there and, and I sat in his office and said, do you have anything you can read? And I had a commentary that I'd written for Don Klein. Yes. And so I just pulled it out of my rucus and I read the commentary and he said, okay, you're hired three shows a day. And it was at that time, it was, now this is the fifth biggest market in the country. Yes. You know, and it was $18,000, which tripled my salary. Oh, you know? wow. Yeah. And, and so I went to KPIX and, and my first night on the air at KPIX was the first time I had ever been inside a television station. I didn't know right. camera you looked through. Yeah. People talk to me all the time now about how did you do it? How did you get into the business? And you can't do it that way. It just doesn't happen. Right. So I hesitate to tell it, to tell that story. But the truth of the matter is, as competitive as this industry is now, I, I probably never would have succeeded because I didn't want it that badly. I wasn't that hungry. I don't know. I wanted to be a cartoonist. That was my... Oh, is that know, right? Yeah. Yeah. And... Uh, yeah, so I worked at I was there for six or seven years, and and then I I got an opportunity to go to New York to WNBC, and mm-hmm. and I actually only went there as a summer replacement. I was going to leave KPIX anyway, it just ran and run its course, mm-hmm. and and so I got this opportunity to go to New York and work at WNBC. So I did it. It was just supposed to be like a six month thing, and I thought, well, I'll go, I'll do it. We'll see. I was young and stupid, and so I did local news at WNBC for almost a year. And, and then shortly after that, NBC Network called, and I had done a lot of features. And as I told you, my background is as a writer. So they wanted me to do features for, they did a show at that time called Grandstand. And so I, they hired me to do features. And then the Today Show used a bunch of my stuff. And so I did that. I went to work for the network there. And, and I still, every now and then, would fill in it at WNBC if they needed another body. And I was in town. I was traveling a lot then too. But the, the sports department at WNBC when I worked there was me, Dick Schapp, who was a legend, of you know, course. and one of my favorite all-time people. Tim Ryan, who did hockey mm-hmm. and actually wound up doing boxing at CBS. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Marv Allen. We were the four people wow. in the air at WNBC. Wow. So, yeah, Tom crew. Snyder was the anchor man. It was pretty powerhouse. Absolutely. Players. Yeah. Wow. And so then you're there, I think, four years in New York. Is that right? Yeah, I was there almost five. Yeah, I was working at NBC and I had a contract with them, but I didn't really have to live in New York anywhere. And I had just about had enough with New York. I, I enjoy it. Don't get me wrong. I, to this day, I really like New York. I have a lot of friends there. I go there all the time. Sure. In fact, I'll be there next week. Mm-hmm. And But this is my home. Sure. I grew up sure. here and 
it's a very different animal here than it is in New York. And as, as much as I told you I was a fan, being a fan out here is very different than being a fan in New York. I always enjoyed it here, but when the game was over, you know, it's still, where are we going to eat? You know, I mean, I, the sun's coming up the next day. Whereas in New York, it was life and death. So it was harder, frankly, to do local television in New York than it was in San Francisco because I, I could do some shtick. It, I didn't take it very seriously. Mm-hmm. So I could do some lighthearted kind of, yeah, kind yeah. of things. And when I went to New York, you can't do that. They take I it see. really seriously. If you fool around with a hockey game or even in the highlights, if you make some little offhanded remark, they hate it. They didn't appreciate the cartoonist at heart. No, right. you know, that's really true. And now Marv is a really funny guy, sure. but he's funny within the context of taking sports really seriously. And I never really took it seriously. And so, I mean, I oh, did fine there. Nobody asked me to leave. You know? Oh, sure, sure. But, but uh, it really was not, I really didn't have any fun. You, you know? wanted to come home. Yeah, I can understand that. Yeah, so I kept my NBC contract and I came back here and I did a couple of years at the NBC station here too, in addition to my network stuff. And that was uh, KRON and then- Yeah, yeah. And then yeah. after that, I think you, you started with HBO at the time. They yeah, were, which was, they were that, going, that was right? another one of those days in my life. That was probably the third one. I was in- um, I was actually in Russia, in Moscow, doing what was it? It was the year before the Olympics mm-hmm. and, in Moscow. And they had uh, kind of a, it amounted to a rehearsal. It, had, it used to be the Russian National Games. Only this, in 1979, they made it like, like the Olympics. They invited 105 countries, and it was basically a rehearsal for the Olympic Games. Sure. So Bob Wessler, who was the president of CBS Sports, Took a bunch of people. I was one of them. It was a real eclectic group of people over to Russia. And we did the equivalent of the Olympic Games a year before the Olympic Games for syndication on American television. Mm-hmm. So and one of the guys that they took was Marty Glickman, who in New York was an idol. And I had always heard, when I was a kid, I used to listen to Marty Glickman. I was one of the guys I really admired and really liked. So anyway, uh, Marty came over to me one just one day in Moscow and said, I've been doing stuff for this little cable network and we're looking for somebody to do some things on the West Coast. Are you interested? And I said, absolutely. And I, I walked away from conversation saying, I, I didn't even know what cable television was. Right. I, I'd never heard of cable television. And about two or three weeks after I got back from Moscow, I got a call from Marty saying, we're doing a gymnastics thing in Hawaii, actually. And are you interested in doing it? I said, sure. You know, I'll go do it. I still didn't know what HBO was. And so I did that. And then shortly after that, Marty called me and said, have you ever done boxing? And it turned out actually that I had mm-hmm. because I did the 1976 Olympic Games while I was at NBC for radio. Uh-huh. And so I wasn't specifically the boxing guy, but I did go do a bunch of fights because that was like the greatest year of boxing in American Olympic history. It was Ray Leonard and Sure. And, yeah, I mean, it was they had eight or nine gold medalists. So I wound up doing a lot of boxing over yes. there. So I could I could say to Marty, yes, I've done boxing. Although yeah. I always tell people, if you know your left from your right, you should be able to do boxing. You know? <laughs> right. That's pretty funny. <laughs> no, it's true. Uh, that was the first time you met Sugar Ray Leonard in Montreal at the Olympics. Uh, yes. That yeah, mm-hmm. I, I met him there, and I got to know him a little bit because I was around there a lot. And then, of course, the irony is now Marty says. Have you done boxing? Yes, I've done boxing. We're doing a national collegiate championship. It was in, at the Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs. Are you interested? Sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. I go there and it's me and Ray Leonard are the hosts. We weren't doing 
we weren't doing blow by blow and color blow by blow was don dumphy who okay. if you're any kind of a boxing fan he was like the voice of boxing all through my youth i used to go to bed at night and listen to to don dumphy on the radio and do boxing so he was one of my heroes and he and larry merchant was the color commentator and ray and i were the hosts so we would talk about the fights and all that kind of stuff and then throw it over to Don Duffy to do the, yes. do the blow by blow. And uh, so somewhere in the middle of the evening, all of a sudden we hear a crash in our ears. And it turns out that Don Duffy and Larry Merchant had some kind of a disagreement oh my. and threw the headsets down and they were standing <laughs> up, they were ready to go. I mean, but both those guys were a little older, the age I am now. And they, and they were about to go Duke, still of a show. And on TV? Live on TV, yeah. <laughs> I mean, only they weren't on camera, so you could you, all you right. could hear is the noise. You didn't really know what was going on. I see, I see. But but Ray and I are looking at it like, really? So now we had to wind up calling some fights, and that was the start of doing boxing at HBO. They called me, and I was the play-by-play guy, and Ray Leonard was the analyst, and, and Larry was still with us, but he was like the third guy. He would do between rounds and interviews and that sort of stuff. Yeah, and that's how I started doing boxing at, at HBO, and then I, of course. They signed me to a contract and I left NBC and left Carol and, and started eight years of doing boxing. And also we did the, the Wimbledon tennis tournament. So I did that for, actually did that for 14 years. Yes. And we did gymnastics and we did figure skating. They were doing a lot of sports at that time. And yeah, so I did that almost nine years and that kind of kickstarted everything for me. It was great experience. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I know that HBO became during that same time became the world leader in boxing coverage. Oh, right? by far. When I think back on it now, it was, yeah, that was the golden era. You know, now in, in retrospect, that's what they call, they're calling it the 80s mm -hmm. and, and even into the early 90s. And so I had a chance to do some of the biggest fights in history. Really, I, I've read that. I, I must yeah. confess, Barry, I, I, of course, know your work from college football and college basketball, but I, I've never really been much of a boxing fan. And so I was really eager to talk to you about your experiences covering it for all those years. Yeah, it's boxing is it's a really interesting sport. And the fighters as a group of athletes, by and my wife, who was a sports columnist for 25 years, used to always say she'd rather do columns on boxing, on boxers than anybody else. And I, I right? feel that way. Yes, because there's something about a fighter. First of all, 99% of them are not very violent. Football players are far more violent than boxers, even basketball players. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, at, at the high levels are much more physical than boxers are. And I, my theory on that is that the only time boxers have anything to prove is in that 18 foot square in a pair of shorts and a pair of gloves. That's it. They got no armor. They're not like football players. They don't wear yes. helmets. They don't wear pads. That's the only place they have to really prove themselves. Outside of there, they can't because their hands are considered deadly weapons. So they can't get in fights. They can't do anything like that. There's True. far less of a drug and alcohol problem in boxing than there is in almost any other sport hmm. that I can think of. Maybe race car driving doesn't, but there, there are problems after a fighter retires, but while a fighter's fighting, there's none of that. And I've always said, uh, I can't say none, there have been instances, sure. but at the highest levels of boxing, if you're 98% ready for the fight, you're going to lose. You have to be 100%. Hmm. And, and that's the only sport I can think of. Football players are hurt all the time. It's not that they don't care or aren't trying, but they're always playing hurt. So they're never 100% right. at any time. Whereas fighters, you, can't, you just can't have 
any anything. You got to be 100%. And I got a good example of that. One time I was in the gym. Ray and I, Ray Leonard is, you know, I've always considered him like my little brother. We're still to this day, we're very close. Yes. And But one time we were in a gym in Los Angeles and, and we were talking about just what you and I are talking about right now. And Ray said, here, I'll show you. Put on a pair of gloves. So I put on gloves, seven ounce gloves, which is what they wear, or eight ounce gloves, what they wear in on competition. He said, just stand in front of that mirror. Every gym has mirrors. And he said, just stand in front of the mirror in a boxing stance. You don't mm -hmm. have to throw any punches or anything. Just stand in front of the mirror in a boxing stance for three minutes, length of a round. And at the end of three minutes, my hands were like down here. He said, oh, you would have been knocked out in 30 seconds. Never yeah. drop your hands, yeah. Yeah, and that was, I wasn't throwing punches and nobody was throwing punches at me. And, and, and I was in reasonably good shape at that time. And you don't even, it was imperceptible. I didn't feel like my hands were down here, but just standing there, not moving, not throwing punches, not taking punches, your hands dropped. Maybe they dropped three or four inches, which is enough to get clipped and yeah. be out of there. And it lends credence to what I was talking about, that they have to be impeccably conditioned. And yeah. they're the kinds of guys, you, you they look you in the eye and they give you a really honest answer when you ask them a question. Mm -hmm. You know, and and they're very insightful. That's why Joan, that's why my wife, uh, always she always got great columns out of fighters. Yeah, yeah, that's very interesting. I can see what you mean now that you explain it. And and she's of course covered other sports as well. So oh, yeah. um, both of the differences between these athletes. And and what about boxing? Is as you mentioned, maybe past its golden era, but now we have a, a different fight sport that's huge in America with mixed martial arts. And I wonder what your, your thoughts are on that. It's interesting. Boxing now has become a niche sport rather than the mainstream sport. And so it's actually thriving. It's doing much better than it has in years, but within a very small coterie of people. And MMA, I think there was a real boxing thought of MMA as a threat and MMA thought of boxing as a threat. Mm -hmm. And because and they, they both were going after the same audience. And I think over the in recent years, MMA, and I've done some MMA, and, and, and it's legit, and it's a very good sport. <clears throat> but I think what's come to pass is that boxing and MMA are two separate sports. Absolutely. You know, they're the difference between baseball and cricket. Sure. That's a good analogy. That makes a lot of yeah, sense. And, you know, so they seem like they would be the same because they're you know, a uh, combat sport, but, mm -hmm. but they're very different. Any... Uh, any any MMA fighter fighting the way he fights on MMA would get knocked out immediately in boxing mm -hmm. uh, because it's just different. And any boxer who allowing for the MMA rules of being taken down, once they got taken down, it's over. Right, you know? of course. So they, they really are, they're really different sports and take a different degree of talent in different areas. And I have great respect for both of them. I, I got, kept getting asked to do MMA shows mm -hmm. when it first started. And I, I kept saying no, because to be honest with you, I thought, it would affect my credibility. And then I did one. It was a pay-per-view one and a big one. I don't really know what's big. But it was it was at the Inglewood, the forum in Inglewood. And mm -hmm. it was, you know, 14,000, 15,000 people. And, wow. it, and I, it proved me wrong. It was really, those people really know what they're doing. They know how mm -hmm. to promote mm -hmm. a fight. The fighters know how to promote their sport much better than boxers. They're like, almost like NASCAR guys. They always get the sponsors in there. and They're very savvy when it comes to that. And I, mm -hmm. I think that in large part accounts for the success of, of sure. MMA. So, you know, I think, I think, frankly, at this point, one is helping the other. They're different, uh -huh. but yet they're both combat sports. So one is feeding off the other right now, I think. There's room for both. 
Interesting. That's really fascinating. Thank you, Barry. And I read this fight, we were talking about Sugar Ray Leonard, and I understand you have been close with him for many years. And I read this funny story about a fight that you called in 1981, where Sugar Ray Leonard is, is fighting against Thomas Hearns. And Leonard was usually your co-commentator on this broadcast. So you had to bring in a replacement. I wonder if you could share that story with the listeners. That find yeah, way. I don't want to trash anybody here. Oh, then please, I can cut no, this no, out. No, no, it's, no, it's okay. Believe me, most of the people that were involved in that fight are dead. <laughs> yeah, okay. so, um, May they rest in peace. There's a real cohesion between a, a play-by-play guy and an analyst. When the show is good, there's a, a very definite, maybe the audience may not know it, but I know it and we all know it. When I don't have to put the spoon in the mouth of my color commentator, and there've been plenty that I have had to, and then there've been others that it's just the opposite. Ray and I, over the course of time, had gotten very comfortable working together because we have an out of the ring friendship that I can, we can talk about things. And I'm not going to, I'm sure most of your listeners or a lot of your listeners don't think Ray is a really good color analyst. And that's the thing about our business. It's subjective. And of course. Some people love you. Some people hate you. It's just the way it is. The but, way of the world. Yeah. Yeah. But, but there was always at least a cohesion. I can ask Ray things. I know it's always coming back. There's a certain flow to it. And the one thing more than anything else is in a big moment in any of not just in boxing, but you don't want your color commentator becoming a, turning into a fan and screaming right. over the top. And so that sets up the Leonard Hearns fight. So the Leonard Hearns fight, they Ray was fighting, as you said, and Larry was w still with us, but they used, they decided they were going to use this guy. His name was Randy Shields. And Randy, he had been an okay professional fighter, never done television, mm -hmm. but he beat both Thomas Hearns and Ray Leonard, and Sugar Ray Leonard in the amateurs. Okay. That was his qualification for being put in there. And so to make a long story short, anytime anything happened in that fight, now you start to get excited, knows the left hand, he's hurt. And that and Randy is, whoa, oh, 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 oh no, you know. You were completely buried. All you heard was this guy just screaming. You know, it happened the whole night. Now here's this. At that time, it was one of the biggest, maybe the biggest event I'd ever done of importance, and you had no chance. Oh. Because there's only so many times, I always say, there's only so many times in a career that you have an opportunity yes. to really say the right thing at the right time in a big event. You know, yes. this yes. just doesn't happen very much. A lot of people, it never happens. Sure. So I've been lucky enough to have it, to have that opportunity on numerous occasions. But when, you, when it does happen, you want to make sure you get it right. I've always said, that's a show I wish I could have back. You okay, know? all right. But speaking of those unique moments in a career, it must have been quite a thrill to have been cast in Rocky Four and cover <laughs> the Drago and Rocky Balboa fight. Yeah. I wonder if you could tell the listeners about that experience. Yeah, it's funny. So I've been doing this for almost 60 years. And and the one event or one thing more, most, more people talk about than anything else, you know, and I... And, I've done a lot of big events. I did the sure. Super Bowl. I've done the Final Four. I've done Olympics. You know, the Masters. Yep. I've done all, you know, mm -hmm. and all mm -hmm. those boxing matches. And Wimbledon, all the whole Grand Slam. But the one thing people talk about more than anything else is that movie. It's Rocky. You know? <laughs> and, well, because it gets regurgitated every year. So I have, sure. I'll do a basketball game, like, usually right around Thanksgiving time. They have this Rocky Film Festival. I think it's Turner or TNT. Somebody has... Okay. So they just keep running all these Rockies, you know. So every year around the 1st of December, I'll be doing a basketball game. And there'll be some kid who wasn't even born. His mother might not have even been born. 
Sure. When that movie was made. That's really funny. And he said, hey man, I saw you. You're, you know. <laughs> it's been regurgitated so many times that it happened still with somebody who literally wasn't born. I was 35 years ago. Anyway, so the experience of it, I'm going to try to shorten this story, but I did it only because I thought. I got a phone call that asked if I was interested in it. And one, I had a couple of weeks where I wasn't working. I didn't have any shows. And two, I thought, I'm so used to doing live television. And that's what I do is live television. Sure. The red light goes on, you start talking. The red light goes off, you say goodnight. Mm -hmm. You go someplace else, you know? Mm -hmm. So I thought, let's see what it's like, what movies are like. I know it's not like live television. So I go do it and... They paid me, and I'm embarrassed to tell you what they paid me. They paid me $2,500 to do this scene. And it took two weeks to do the scene. Oh, my. I probably could have been saying fries with that burger and made the same kind of money. You know? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so, but anyway, so we do it and, it, and it took two weeks, as I said. And it was supposed to be winter in Moscow, and it was summer in Vancouver, British Columbia when we did it. Yes. And, uh, and, and all of it was, of course, inside in an arena. And you had to wear like heavy coats because it was supposed to be winter and it was 95 degrees outside. And a lot of times they couldn't use the air conditioning in the building because it would affect the cameras and all that sort of stuff. So we had, and he had to sit there for 12, 13 hours a day, every day. Unbelievable. And because the audio part of it, we did in one day. And you just had to be in the background when they were filming the yeah, rest of the Yeah, you had to be in the shot because we were in the front row. Of course, of so, course. And I have to say, it was very fascinating watching how they did the boxing scenes. It's yeah. choreography. It's just, it's a dance. And 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 I give, I really got a lot of respect for Sly Stallone because he produced that one and uh, directed, I should say. Yes. And uh, there are 15 cameras and he knew where every camera was and what it was shooting. And so they do the shot and then he'd go over and he'd look at the rushes of every camera and he'd come back and say, camera two, I want you to push back about a foot and a half. Camera three, I want you to do that pan a little bit slower than you did. He just knew he was really good at it. And that was really impressive to me. But in the meantime, it took 12 days. <laughs> and, and you've been hearing about and, it for the rest of your life. And, and, and I was, and, and actors, I... There are some that are just excellent. I have friends who are actors. And, but some of the people that did that movie were, and the one in particular was Bridget Nielsen, who was then Stallone's girlfriend. Okay. She played the part of Drago's wife. Yes. So there was a scene, one scene, and if you've seen the movie enough, you'll remember the scene, where the fight starts to turn and Rocky starts beating up on Drago. And there's a scene in the corner between rounds where Drago's Russian manager has to come up on the ring apron and he gets in Drago's ear and he does this. It's about a 30 second diatribe in Russian. And, and he didn't speak Russian, so it was all learned. And, and then at the end of that diatribe, Bridget Nielsen, his wife, is in the audience and she's supposed to stand up. And her line is, yet, you know, yes, her man is getting beat up. Okay, they roll the camera scene, you know, first take, the guy comes up, character actor, you've seen him a million times, does his 30-second diatribe in Russian, doesn't speak Russian, perfect. She stands up, says, yet, cut, take two. Give me a little more emotion, you know, you're worried about your husband, give me a little something. Guy comes up, 30 seconds, doesn't speak Russian, perfect. Does it perfectly, she stands up, yet, you know, 15 <laughs> takes. <laughs> he got his part right every time and she kicked yet 15 times 
Oh, that's torture. I went out of there thinking, oh, and she's making a hundred times what I'm making. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah right. Oh, boy. Oh, my God. It was, uh... yeah. So I left there thinking, this is ridiculous. And then, and, and I never want to do this again. And yeah. thanks for the experience. And then, and so all of a sudden, the movie comes out. And the way they cut the movie, I was on camera for a certain period of time. I don't even know how long. But apparently the union says, if you're on camera for, I think it's only 30 seconds, and have a speaking part, you're a principal in the movie. Uh-huh. So to make a long story short, to this day, I'm getting checks from that movie. Oh, wow. All right. To this well, day. So- so you made and, the right choice getting your retainer oh, yeah. of 2500 I'm, I'm, I'm embarrassed to even tell you how much money. I'm. And when I think of what I made, I'm thinking, how much does Sloan make? Right, right, or right. Bridget Nielsen. Right, right. <laughs> how much per take? That is really funny. Yeah. And, and another one of your famous calls, Barry, was when Mike Tyson emerged as the alpha male of boxing. But I read that you actually don't think very much of what you said uh, looking back on it. No, uh, I wonder if you could talk about covering Tyson and what it was like when he came. Yeah, on well, team. Tyson, I, he, I could do an hour on Tyson. I'd love to do another show <laughs> on just Tyson. That'd be great. We could easily. Yeah, I, I, as I mentioned earlier, you only get so many opportunities to make a call that might have some impact or might be repeated or sure. whatever. Like Al Michaels, do you believe in miracles? Probably the greatest call of all time. And it was the big, a big moment, and he said exactly the right thing. Yeah. And that's what you strive for. And as, sure. as I told you earlier, if, I've always thought if you get 50%, you're doing And many people in this industry never get an opportunity. You know, sure. I mean, there's never a, an event that's of the magnitude where something you say is going to be remembered. So that's why I downplayed that, because I think really all I said, and the only reason I know this, and I had to look it up recently, I don't, I really don't remember it. But after, the, after Tyson knocked out Burbick, and in all the hoopla that went on afterward, I said, we have a new era in heavyweight boxing. And but to me, it's just what you say. I never thought of it as this great. It was not, do you believe in miracles? And yet people keep come, you know, bringing that line back to me somehow. So, yeah, I can't tell you why it lasted, but it has. And yeah, Mike Tyson was a guy I, I never, I thought he wouldn't lose a fight for 10 years. I read that you said that. Yeah, that's yeah, really fascinating. Yeah, I, I'm sure you probably read. In fact, it's funny because I just used this on the air on a show just the other night. But his punches sounded different than anybody else's punches I ever heard. And I always equated it to it sounded like dropping a watermelon off a building. Wow. You know, that's the way his punches sounded. They hurt me. You wow. know. Wow. And it was unique. I, I've never before or since heard anything like it. I've heard punches because you really hear them in your ear when you're wearing headsets. And so I, I thought somewhere along the line, I would hear that again. I never have. Mm-hmm. I've heard our punches and you can really tell the difference, but not like that. And so I, I really didn't. I didn't think he would lose for 10 years, but I have and always have had a real soft spot for Mike Tyson. But considering his background and where he came from and sure. all of that, kind of, as I said, I could do an hour on it and I'm really going to try and paraphrase here but he was a smart guy not so much book smart but he was savvy he was mm-hmm. really savvy and he knew a lot he knew a lot about life and about about boxing he was mm-hmm. a great historian he always used to say that his favorite fighter of all time was benny leonard benny leonard was a featherweight who fought in 1919 it was a champion in 1919 Is that you right? know and and yeah and mike knew everything about him and how he fought and why he liked him and all that kind mm. of stuff and he was really good at that. And he was also, he was a real soft and fuzzy guy. There was a side of him. That was, yes. There was also that other side. Yes. You know, and he went from one side 
to the other side in an instant. Almost the most frightening part about it. But. Right. In fact, I'll tell you, I, I will tell you this one story that Please. is that to the hilt describes mm -hmm. it completely. So my wife, I told you she was a newspaper columnist for a long time. And uh, she, uh, we were covering, so I was doing a fight, one of his fights in Las Vegas. And so she said, she asked me, do you think I could get a one-on-one -on -one with him and, you know, do a column one? So I said, I don't know, I'll call him. So I called him and he, we had a very good relationship. He said, yeah, absolutely, come. So we went to the gym, Johnny Taco's gym, another great name. Yeah, know, absolutely. In Las Vegas. And uh, it was after his workout and there was nobody in the gym except uh, one of his guys and Mike and me and John. And, and he was sitting up on a training table. And at that time, he had a son whose name was DeMarco, I think. It was named D'Amico. Okay. And, and, he, and we had just had our son, not mm -hmm. about a year or two before. And so he, before Joan could ask him a question, and what she wanted to talk to him about was, do you remember when he would come into the ring, he just wore a towel over his neck, and he, he would stare at it from the minute he... He got onto the ring apron. He would stare at his opponent and he would never take his eyes off his opponent. He would just stalk him. He'd walk around the ring and he'd just stare. Just Absolutely stare terrifying. At his opponent. And even during the anthem and the introduction of celebrities and all that kind of stuff, never took his eyes off his opponent. Scared. It scared me. I'm sitting 50 feet away. I mean, yeah, you know? you're right. You're ringside. And, and right I, saw there. Him, I saw him win fights before a punch was thrown. It was really. It that, defined, that kind of intimidation was just it that defined powerful. the term if looks could kill. So, Joan, what you wanted to write this column about is what are you thinking? What's going through your mind when, when this is happening? So, before she could ask him a question, he said he said to her, it's "Great to have a little boy," because we had just both of us had just sure. And uh, and Joan said, "Yeah, it really is. <laughs> I love to hug and kiss my little boy. It's so nice. I really know all this really soft, soft and fuzzy stuff." He asked her, "What's it like to be married?" So all this was going on for about a minute, but Joan wasn't sure how long she would have with him because she he's ready, getting ready for a fight. She thought he might bolt on him at any minute. So she wanted to get him back on point. And what she wanted to talk about was what's going through his mind. Here, and so now you have to envision in one second, he's talking about hugging and kissing his little boy. Yes. And in the next second, Joan asks him, what are you thinking about? when you come into the ring and you never take your eyes off your opponent. And he looked at her and he said, I just want to eat them. Oh, <laughs> my, God. Like, oh my gosh. We'll take the check. <laughs> like, End of interview right there, huh? It was uh, chilling. Chilling. Oh my. And, and that's all you need to know about Mike Tyson. He had, that was one side of him and that was the other side of him. And I, I've seen them both. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Uh, those are some powerful stories, Barry, about Tyson. Thank you for sharing them. I'm, yeah, in awe of your descriptions of him as well. The man, uh, just being that close to a man like that must have been uh, an awe-inspiring experience. He's a, he's a very, he's an off-putting, you know what? You don't feel like scared or intimidated when you're around him because he's very off-putting. He's very nice, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know? And, and he is, that is who he is. But he, you talk about, uh, I don't know what your background is, but my guess is we have a similar kind of background. Yes. No, and I got through life just fine. There were no, I wasn't in fear of being shot or, right. you know. That's right. And and he grew up in Bed-Stuy, which now yes. is very Tony. When he grew up there, it was, you take your life in your hands, walking out the door. And, yes, uh, indeed. And he was a little guy, grew up a little pudgy guy with a lisp. So he got beaten up every day. 
all the That's time. Yeah. Divisions. And then he became a big guy with a list. Yeah. 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 Right, right. And, <laughs> and all those guys that had picked on him. There you are. They were running away. Yeah. That's exactly right. And that's what motivated him. That's what pushed him. You know, and that's why he was the way he was. Fascinating. Really fascinating. Thank you, Barry. So you've worked in boxing, but also all these other sports for many years. And I'm curious if you could reflect back on the different sports that you've covered over time. It's Olympics, boxing, football, basketball, poker, I read you've also covered tennis and golf. And do any of these sports have a special or sentimental place for you? People ask me all the time, what's your favorite sport? And and most people think it would be, it's boxing. I really like college sports. Mm-hmm. So if, if somebody just said, the money were equal and everything was the same, what do you want to do? I'd probably say either college football, college basketball. And I, and I like doing it in a place where it's like the only show in town. Yeah. You know, like Stillwater, Oklahoma. Or the Lincoln, college Nebraska, town. You know? yeah. yeah. Where people are talking about the game, you know, now, and where I live in California, it's not like that at all. You right, know, the right. sun's coming up tomorrow, but I like the atmosphere of a full crowd. There used to be a, before they built the new arena up in Oregon, they played in a place called Matt court and Matt court was so loud. And the student section was right behind where we did our, where our position was. So if we, when we would do the open of the show, I, I literally would have to look at my, color analyst's mouth to see when he stopped talking. I had no idea what he was talking about. Because wow. I hear so I'd ask him a question. He'd, he'd talk. I'm assuming he's answering the question. And I, and But I could not hear when he stopped talking. I'd have to see when his lips stopped moving. Yes. You know, it was that loud in there. Unbelievable. And, and I love places. I, that that to me is the essence of what sports is. But when I, when I look back on all the different events I did, and I did do a lot of different sports by choice, really. I'm sure somewhere in my life, I was probably ADD when I was a kid. They didn't diagnose anything okay, as ADD. Right. So I like doing different things all the time. And as an adult, I've gotten a little more mature. But <clears throat> I I like going from doing a basketball game one day and a boxing a fight the next day and a tennis tournament the next day and sailing the next day. Yeah. I like it. And, and I find that it keeps me fresh. And I still feel that's why I've been able to have kind of the longevity that I have is because every sport has a different cadence. Mm-hmm. Every sport has obviously different rules. Every sport has a different rhythm to it, different language. Your role as a play-by-play guy is very different in, in say, tennis as it is in hockey. Of course. Where you got to call every play. In tennis, the point plays, you don't, there is right. no play-by-play. I like that. And I find it keeps me fresh going from one thing to another. And I, I like doing, I had a guy, people, again, the other question I get asked all the time is because they know I've done, I, I actually have done, to the best of my knowledge, 50 different sports. That's incredible. Uh, yeah. I didn't, sports even, I didn't even know there were 50 different sports. Well, it's funny <laughs> you say that because uh, Sports Illustrated one year uh, put out a calendar and on the calendar, there was a sport for every week. Okay. So 52 weeks. Sure. And I had done 50 of the 52. Yeah. Unbelievable. Some of them were one game or one event. Or, and funny, just today I was telling somebody, I, I at the Olympic Games one time I had to go do field hockey. I'd never even seen a field hockey game. I didn't know the rules about field hockey. I knew nothing about field hockey. And I didn't find out about it until the morning of the game. And it was the gold medal game. You know, <laughs> And it was between India, where every name in the lineup had 17 syllables, and Australia 
<laughs> and so I had a, you know, first thing you have to do is learn the rules. So the basic rules, how many people on a side, it was just really that basic. I learned the language. That's the one thing that I, uh, again, I was talking to this student that I had just before I got out with you and, sure. uh, and we we're talking about this very thing. And I said, what it always is, I don't, you don't have to be an expert. You can do any sport. You don't have to be an expert because you always have an expert sitting next to you. That's you right. I have That's somebody, right. you know, I did this feel like a guy who was on the Pakistani Olympic. Team. So I don't have to be an expert in field hockey. All I have to do is know the rules, speak the language of the sport and say, go, you know, whatever, <laughs> yeah, right. whatever they call it. I, but I don't have to do any nuance at all. And my credo has always been, and I was telling this kid today, if anybody asks you, have you ever done this? There's only one answer. And that happened many times in my career. So those kinds of things to me are, you get through them and you say, whoo, boy, you know, that was fun. And yeah. that's happened many times. I, I've never been a hockey guy, hockey to me, I'm a West Coast boy, so ice is to fall down on, and uh, or goes margaritas. One of the <laughs> there two. There you go. There you, you know? go. And I, so I did. I've done one hockey game in my life, which was also at the Olympics, and it was. Uh, I mean, the Olympics is a great opportunity to do a lot of different things, especially if you're considered as I was to be jack of all trades. Whenever they need somebody to do something, hey, go over there. You know. Sure, sure. And do that. So, I, so it was the bronze medal game in hockey, and it was Finland and Czechoslovakia. So I'd never done a hockey game again. I knew a little about the sport, but read the rules, know the nuance, all that sort of stuff. Know the language, know the blue line from you know the red line and all that sort of stuff. And so I did the game, but the interesting thing about that one was Finland, everybody on the team had four, at least four vowels in their name. You know, Czechoslovakia, nobody had any vowels. You know, <laughs> so it was blotch. Sounds like a uh, an uneven match. Yeah, that was the only difficulty was you know pronouncing people's names. But I got asked to do it was at the Olympics in Calgary, and and I had been doing alpine skiing. That's what I did at most of Winter Olympic games. And and one day alpine skiing was off, and they said go over and do bobsled. But I, I know nothing about bob. I know what the sport is. You know, you get this little thing and you. Sure. Down a shoot, you know. Sure. So I, the guy that had been doing it actually was Bill White, who was a baseball guy. And and so I went to Bill, who was one of the nicest men in the world. And I asked him, I used to do the Yankees. He did, he was the voice of the Yankees for a long time and played for the Yankees. So I said, How do you do bobsled? <laughs> he said, Here they come, there they go. <laughs> and basically, that's what I did. That's it, right? Come, there they go. You know, and the other thing is that <laughs> I'm oversimplifying this to be sure, but there are only really two kinds of sports. There's field sports and clock sports. You sure, know? sure. And, and, and really, if you break it down to the absolute bare essentials, field sports all have a center line. They all have either a net or a container or a basket or something that you're shooting sure. for. Baseball is the one exception. But they're all played on a field. They all have sidelines. It's either rectangular or square or whatever has measurements, defined measurements. And, and the other kind is a clock sport. Any mm -hmm. race, I've always said this, a yacht race is no different than a 100-meter dash. Sure. And so if you can read time, you can do that. You know? Yeah, right, right. You know, that, those, you just learn those things over the course of time. The well, one sport, very impressive. The one sport that I did 
that uh, I, I get asked about this all the time and I talk about it all the time because to me it's still amusing. But I had a guy who, when I worked at NBC, <clears throat> he gave me my first network play-by-play job. Okay. And, uh, and he left NBC and I told him, I owe you, I owe you big time. Whatever show you, he started to start his own production company. I said, whatever you have, I, I owe you one. I will do the show and I will do it for nothing. You just call me. As long as I'm not working, I'll be there and I'll do it. Sure. So about a year later, I get a call. He said, I'm taking you up on your offer. <laughs> I said, okay. <laughs> it was the Beverly Hills Kennel Club Dog Show. <laughs> okay. At, at the sports arena in Los Angeles. So frankly, I'm a big dog person. I love dogs. And, and I said, okay, here's the deal. You don't have to pay me, but you got to give me a dog. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. You know, so I go there and did you ever see the movie Best in Show? Of course. Yeah. Great film. That film was not a comedy. It was a documentary. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, this was Best in Show, maybe one, one little step below. Okay. Best in show, it took it just to the next degree of absurdity. But sure, sure. it was, so my color commentator, my analyst is a former judge. So I'm 5'7". She was about 6'4 and went about three bills, I'd say, okay. about 300 pounds. Looked like she, if she had horns on her head, she could have been an opera singer. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, she, and she like Brunhilde. And I, I came up about, to her breasts and we have to do the open to this dog show after our tuxedo she's in a gown it's at six o'clock in the morning freezing your ass off outside the sports arena <laughs> my mind is racing thinking what am i doing here and why am i doing this so that was the beginning of it and then i thought we could have some fun with this and because i once did a, did a story on how people look like their dogs a long-haired woman with an afghan it's like a bulldog and i had done this whole story on it years prior i did a feature story on it at a uh -huh. dog show and it was very funny you know so i thought okay this will be fun you know so i didn't really try to wisecrack so much as i just a couple of little asides and every time i would she would look at me like you know <laughs> and, and just like in in best of show just, you know yeah, that movie yeah. you know where they they lift the dog up and they look at the dog's private parts and, you know, and, and, and uh, Willard's line is, could you pass a test like that? You know? Yeah, right. You know? And that was the, all the stuff that was running through my head. You could have fun with it. Well, to, to make a long story short, it was not an ounce of fun. It was, and the people, the trainers are the biggest collection of, I don't know, can I swear on your ear? Why you not? Know, of assholes I've ever been around in my life. You know, and the owners of the dogs, they had nothing to do with the dogs, except they owned the dogs and they wanted the ribbons, you know. That's it, huh? And Yeah. And so everybody, it was just, it was nobody, in, there was nobody, there was 12,000 people in that building. There was not one of them I ever want to spend more than three minutes. <laughs> you know? I mean, so I walked, I got out of there and I, and I told the producer, you know, this is a friend of mine that said, I don't even want the dog. If a dog has anything to do with these people, I don't want the dog. <laughs> that is hilarious. So I didn't even take the dog, you know, oh, man. And, the, and the irony of, of that show was it was on ESPN. And the irony is for about 10 years after that, 
they would use the Beverly Hills Dog Show as counter-programming to whatever if the Super Bowl was on. Sure. And ESPN sure. didn't have the Super Bowl. They'd run the Beverly Hills Dog Show. You know, <laughs> if the World Series was on and everybody would be watching the World Series and they didn't have the World Series, yes. they'd run the Beverly Hills Dog Show. You're right, you know, right. The Olympic Games, they'd run the Beverly Hills Dog Show. And so 10 years after that, people are telling me, hey, man, I saw you on the Dog Show. <laughs> And it's a date you wish you could forget, but you can't. Oh my God. It was, yeah, it's what I get for making promises to people. Yeah. There you go. Yeah, that, that's the lesson learned. Barry, thank you so much. I, I always end these shows by asking about um, the power of sports. And, and of course, it's a subjective question. And, but given your long career in sports and uh, sports broadcasting, I'm, I'm really curious to, to hear. I know you mentioned a moment ago how the crowd is part of that, that feeling and being in a packed stadium, but absolutely. Yeah. You know, what is it sports in its own way is a metaphor for life. You know, I mean, everything that goes on in life goes on in a single game. It's happiness and sadness and reward and absolutely. depression and all the things that we live with every day of our lives. And I, sports for me is a vehicle. And mm -hmm. I, I always tell people I, I work in a toy shop, the game's over and it was a game and it's over. And this is the truth. I, if like a football game, if I don't write the score of the game down right at the end of the game, and we have another couple of minutes to fill before we go off the air, mm -hmm. by the time we go off the air, I couldn't tell you the score of the game. I, I very yeah. couldn't even tell you who won unless I look on my notes because it's a game. I'm an adult talking about kids games. Sure. You know? sure. How sweet is that? It keeps me young and I'm around young people all the time. So sports is, it's an escape yeah. and, and that's how it relates to life. You know, that's, that's why people go to sports events. It's an escape and they can take out aggression or they can be happy or they can be loud. That's right. Which you can't do in your living room or at yeah. least not in my living room. Yeah, yeah. Right. Barry, thank you so much. I really enjoyed this. This is a raucous good time. I haven't laughed this much in a long time. Oh, I appreciate that. Yeah, good no, questions. Good. I, I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much, Barry. And I look forward to, to speaking with you again sometime soon. No, anytime. I'm happy to do it. I love doing right. this. Thank so. you, Barry. You All have right, a wonderful thanks, rest man. of your day. Okay. Bye-bye. Okay, well, that'll wrap up our show for the day. I hope you enjoyed it. My sincere thanks to Barry Tompkins for sharing some of his great stories with me. What a career he has had. The people, the variety, the fun. I hope you've enjoyed the show. And if you did, please consider leaving a favorable review for me on Apple Podcasts. And if you're feeling especially generous, please head on over to my Patreon page and donate to help the show grow. With your financial support, I can continue to invite great guests and produce high-quality episodes while also keeping the show ad-free. You can find me on Patreon by searching for Aaron L. Miller. That's A-A-R-O-N and L is in Larry Miller. Thank you all for listening and have a great rest of your day.